3: The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Janis Joplin died at the age of 27, and she lived a life of constant change for both good and bad. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Five would be the number of musicians that comprised Big Brother and The Holding Company, the band that put Janis in San Francisco at the forefront of the rock and roll scene. Another four would be the number of musicians that manager Albert Grossman would soon find redundant when he became interested in taking on Big Brother and the Holding Company as a client. Thirteen more would be the age Janice was when she snuck out of her house to see blues legend Etta James perform in an adult venue, an experience that would shape the way she would approach music performing and Addiction years later. Another two would be the number of hippie bands busted by the cops in just four days in San Francisco in October 1967, the same week that street activists declared the hippie movement dead in the water. And three would be the number of years she had left to live after she was introduced to the darkest, deadliest addiction she would come to know, heroin, aka the awful and mighty Schmie's. On this, our sixth episode of season three, Albert Grossman Death to Hippies Schmies and Janis Joplin Walking a winding path to liberation I'm Jake Brennan and this is the 27 Club Etta James had no time to react. Within the blink of an eye, Etta and her husband, artist Mills, were surrounded on all sides by men with their fingers on triggers. San Antonio's finest, narcotics cops. Step out of the car, and put your hands where we can see them. Who did the cops think that they were? Frank Lucas, bringing in the SWAT style heat for a blues singer and her main man? Etta fought the glare of the setting sun and looked through the sedan's front windshield to make the leader of the drug squad, Wild Bill, the notorious narcotics officer. They called him Wild Bill because his manhunts frequently ended in dramatic shootouts. Etta and Artis had nowhere to run. They were in a San Antonio alleyway. They'd been cruising, looking for the man, and there was a hookup along these back alleys. A guy with a short sleeve button-up Paisley shirt and wide lapel, a crucifix around his neck, oxblood shoes. He knew it was him because he was always flipping a playing card in his hands. And then the cops came out of nowhere. Patrol cars at either end of the alley. Edda and Artis were trapped, sirens, lights, angry voices through standard issue megaphones. Turn the ignition off and step out of the car, now. Etta looked down at her hands from where she sat in the passenger seat. She was holding two balloons of heroin. Her hands shook. How the fuck were they getting rid of this shit? And why the hell were they cruising for more dope when they had enough to get them by right here in her hands? Her hands shook more rapidly now. Artis kept his right foot on the brake and massaged the steering wheel compulsively with sweaty hands. Something to keep his mind off of what was happening, what was about to happen, and what he was about to do. The cops started to inch closer now, crouched in their action positions, and there were at least five guns pointed at the car when Artis made the decision. His knuckles went white. He inhaled deeply, held it for about five seconds, and then exhaled. He turned to Edda and said under his breath, Give me the shit. Etta stared at him in disbelief. Her hands were vibrating now, and the cops drew in tighter. The shit. Give me the shit. Now, Edda. Etta. Etta held onto the balloons even tighter now. She knew what Artis was thinking and she wasn't going to just hand it over to him without thinking it through. But she had no time. She turned her head to the front of the car again, saw Wild Bill's finger go all itchy on his pistol's trigger. And then Artis reached over to grab the balloons of dope from his wife's hands and stuck them deep into his jean pockets. He put the sedan in park, opened the driver's side door, stepped out with his hands up and felt the front end of the car eat his abdomen when Wild Bill shoved him mercilessly onto the hood artists would take the fall. He said the heroine was his and his alone, and they sent him to prison for 10 years. It was 1972. Etta James was 32 years old. She would wind up in the Tarzana Psychiatric Hospital for 17 months back in California, and then to court-ordered rehab. For Etta James, one of the greatest and also one of the most troubled blues singers of all time, The bust in San Antonio was just the latest twist in a turbulent life of ups and downs. She was born Jamesetta Hawkins in Los Angeles in 1938 to a mother who was only 14 years old. She was told that her father was Minnesota Fats, the legendary pool hustler, but she could never confirm it. As a kid, Etta was a great singer and a juvenile delinquent, though not always in that order. At 15, she was discovered by band leader Johnny Otis, who flip-flopped her first name to give her her stage name, James Etta, Etta James. And by the time she was 21, she was recording for Chess Records. She had also developed a heroin habit that threatened to derail her entire career. She fought back from heroin briefly and from her professional slump in 1967, when Chess sent her to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, to record with Rick Hall at the Seminole Fame Studios. Leonard Chess hoped the change in scenery would help keep Etta's mind off junk and focus on making the label some money. One of the songs from those sessions, Tell Mama, was exactly what the doctor ordered. Along with At Last, Tell Mama would become one of Etta's signature tunes, peaking at number 10 on the R&B chart and at number 23 on the Billboard Hot 100, the highest she'd ever make it on the pop charts, though it provided her a temporary reprieve from her addictions the hit wasn't able to deliver her entirely from her demons. Janice Joplin had more than a few things in common with Etta James. They were both hard-headed, both fought addictions throughout their lifetime, both sang the blues like nobody's business. One of Janice's earliest memories of a woman commanding a stage, in fact, was a show Etta played at the Big Tin Ballroom in Tulsa, Oklahoma in the mid-50s. Etta, as usual, was in charge. Every set of ears and eyes there were under her spell. Janice was out on another of her late night under the radar sneaks, soaking up the sights and sounds of destinations that were decidedly not for kids. The big tin was all cigarette smoke and spilled booze, the smell of it undercut by the eau de refer that wafted from inside the bathrooms and backstage dressing rooms. Janice pawed through the crowd like a dogwood flower that had fallen into a river and was passed from current to current shore to shore, eddy to eddy, its petals pulled in every direction. She went right to the source that night. First she passed by a couple making out against the edge of the bar. She bumped into a fight that had broken out at one of the tables and nearly took an empty bottle of bourbon to the face. The room rollicked with shouts and murmurs, curse words and catcalls, hustles and proposals. She asserted herself all the way backstage and straight to the dressing room door that would get her a few minutes of face time with Miss James herself. She would tell Mama all about it, and she wanted Mama to tell her too. Years later, in 1969, Janis Joplin once again found herself in the same room as one of her idols, Etta James, again, and this time, as a fly on the wall at Etta's latest recording session. It was one of Etta's first sessions after the famed studio dates that had yelled to tell Mama. And after one particularly gritty take, Etta looked into the control room and saw a white woman sitting next to the console, She wore a puffy fur coat and some sort of hat that looked like a dead animal draped across the top of her head. I thought this was a private session, she said to the piano player standing next to her. Who the fuck is this chick? She didn't remember Janis Joplin, the teen who came to her dressing room in Tulsa to pay homage all those years before. And she didn't know Janis Joplin, the hippie rock goddess, because she didn't pay attention to that sort of thing. The following year, Janis would dig deep, real deep, All the way back to that night in Tulsa to perform one of the most indelible versions of Tell Mama delivered by Etta James or anyone during a date on the Festival Express tour of Canada with the Grateful Dead. She delivered the song at the peak of her powers and the height of her fame. She was transcending Etta and Bessie Smith and Big Mama Thornton and all the female singers she had been inspired by. And that moment was all made possible by a manager who saw her talent and her potential and made her a deal. But there were a few caveats. She had to uphold her end of the bargain if she wanted to reach the top. So she promised that she would. There's no such thing as an honest man. That was Albert Grossman talking. He was in her head. He'd been in her head since Monterey Pop. Probably even before that. He'd been in her head since the time she first took notice of the big man. The older man. Who stood in Bob Dylan's shadow. He wasn't just in Dylan's shadow. He filled the square footage of that shadow and then some. They called him the bear and this was why. He ate shadows. When she panicked at Monterey in 67 because she found out that she wasn't going to be included in D.A. Pennebaker's documentary thanks to her deluded, money-hungry manager, Janis Joplin found Grossman backstage and asked for his help. Grossman was Gotham slick, Metropolis slick. Guy was a fucking superhero in a decidedly unhip suit. He was part of the machine, not too far off from one of the shady Los Angelinos running the show, and the San Franciscans had been instructed to always be skeptical of that type and that type was a buck-making type, nothing else. Grossman made the bucks because he was ruthless, and Janice needed to bend the ear of a ruthless man. Teach me, she seemed to say to him with her desperate eyes. Teach me to be ruthless. There's no such thing as an honest man, he told Janice. She assumed he was including himself in that statement. He told her how to handle Big Brother's manager, Julius Carpin, and so she did. He told her to hit the guy where it hurt, in the back pocket. That's where he kept his wallet, and so she did. And she wound up one of the most talked-about performers in Pennebaker's film. She carried Grossman's fatherly advice around with her, kept it in her back pocket, and she used it again when it was absolutely necessary. Julius's next Bush League move was to pull Big Brother out of a Bill Graham-produced bill at the Hollywood Bowl, a show called Bill Graham Presents the San Francisco Sound, with the dead and the airplane headlining. Julius pulled them days before the show, Bill Graham had made nice with Janice, put the whole local rag shit talk thing behind them because he realized Janice would make him more money by playing his venue than not playing his venue. And this Hollywood Bowl thing was a get, man, a big get. But Julius, his infinite wisdom outdone only by a short-sighted woe-is-me game, fucked that up real good. And Julius blamed Graham. Said Graham cut Big Brother set time in half at the last minute. So Julius countered by pulling the band at the last minute. And Julius thought he had the upper hand. Graham laughed him off. He didn't have time for the Bush League. Julia saved face by throwing the band under the bus. The press, in turn, placed the blame squarely on Janice and Big Brother. And then, the public ate her alive. It was typical Janice, they said. This is exactly what she did at coffee and confusion in all those joints years ago. Janice must be high in a lesbian bar somewhere. Janice was livid. First of all, who gave a shit where she went or who she hung out with? Women, men, men, women, why was that anyone's business? It was 1967, so grow the fuck up. Second of all, Julius, that motherfucker, had to go. Third, she had just the guy who could take over as Big Brother's proper manager, the bear. She could make it happen, she was sure of it. And fourth, fuck those people who said she was blowing off a show to go get lifted. Not that she wasn't getting high, but she was learning how to balance one thing so that it didn't totally interfere with the other thing. She could do both. All these thoughts bounced around in her head as she closed her eyes to pull the needle from her arm, relaxed the belt, and slunk back in her chair. Think positive, she told herself. The rush of the junk hitting her now like a giant Persian rug enveloping her from the ceiling on down. She kept her eyes closed so that she could see this rug and not just feel it. It felt so real. And then something changed and she felt shame. She felt like she was doing something wrong. She felt like she was hiding something, like she was living a lie. She was back to thinking about Albert Grossman. He was in her head again. There's no such thing as an honest man. You want to talk about honest men? Like, how long had Gurley been holding out on her? James Gurley, Big Brother's lead guitarist, had taken the dive into the deep end at some point and started to fuck around with heroin. First, he did it alone, and then he did it with some friends, friends who weren't in the band. And then, Gurley and Janice were backstage in Huntington Beach after a show with Big Mama Thornton, of all people, that blues goddess herself. And Gurley teased out a baggie in between his thumb and his forefinger. It dangled, and he asked Janice if she wanted to go higher than speed, higher than meth. She thought about Julius throwing her under the bus, about what the public said about her, about Peter DeBlanc and Port Arthur and her parents, what everyone had said about her from time to time as she struggled to escape what she once was and become what she was meant to be. Fuck yeah, she wanted to go higher. So she took the bait. Now she was thinking about Grossman again and about his rule, his one rule that he had if he was going to become their manager. He would take them places they'd never been before, make them more famous than their wildest dreams. He even thought that Janice had a standalone career that didn't involve the guys in the band, to be quite honest, but he and Janice were keeping that hush-hush for now. He had one rule, no schmies. He had to elaborate what he told them. Schmie's, you know, dope, junk, heroin. Grossman insisted. He had his reasons. He saw the toll it took on brilliant musicians. His first wife died of an overdose. He took it personally, and the band said yes, and they agreed. They said they wouldn't touch the stuff. Janice and Gurley shot conspiratorial glances at one another behind Grossman's back. Grossman doubled all their salaries to 200 a week. He told them he was close with Clive Davis at Columbia, he told him he was going to work on Clive to buy the band out of their shitty contract with Bob Shad and Mainstream Records. He just needed time. But if anyone could do it, it was Albert Grossman. It was The Bear. Grossman was 20 years older than the bands he managed. He wore sweater vests and tweed coats, salt and pepper hair. Dylan said he was like Sydney Greenstreet in the Maltese Falcon. He looked like the hip uncle of the rock scene, the one who had good taste, deep pockets, and two distinct sides, the one you wanted to be on, and the one you wouldn't want to be caught dead on. He didn't fuck around, not with his clients, not even with his ex-clients. He would spend the better part of the late 70s and early 80s tied up in a legal battle with Dylan when Dylan decided that he wasn't going to work on Grossman's farm no more. Grossman was from Chicago. He opened one of the first folk clubs in the country. He launched the Newport Folk Festival. He made Woodstock, New York, the place to see and be seen as a musician in the late 60s, specifically Bearsville, a hamlet where he established a recording studio and a record label. Grossman reinvented what it meant to manage a performing artist, and he did so while spearheading the careers of Odetta, Peter, Paul, and Mary and the artist formerly known as Robert Zimmerman. In late 1967, He followed in the steps of his number one client and went electric. He turned his attention from the Folkies to the Rockers, Paul Butterfield, the electric flag, the band. He didn't have anyone from San Francisco on his roster. Janice and Big Brother changed that. But Grossman didn't really want Big Brother and the holding company. He wasn't much interested in Gurley or in Sam Andrew or Peter Albin or Dave Goetz. Grossman wanted Janice and Grossman thought that Janice's true success was out on her own and that Big Brother was holding her back. He thought his biggest challenge would be extracting Janice from her band. But it turned out that keeping her head above water and out of the schmees would be the biggest challenge of all. We'll be right back
0: after this word, word, word. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment...
3: Janice was the first one to spot the cops from the stage. They weren't even trying to be incognito. Their heads were held high, and their posture was rock solid. They were looking for trouble. They wanted trouble to notice them, walk up to them, and ask them what the fuck they were doing there, give them a reason to show them what the fuck they were doing there. Janice could see it in their eyes. One of the cops looked straight at her and made eye contact. He kept his eyes on her and leaned into the shorter cop next to him, shouted into his ear and pointed at Janice. She didn't know what exactly was about to happen next, but she didn't like it. October 1967. San Francisco, the Matrix Nightclub. Janice and Big Brother were in the middle of combination of the two, the frenetic rocker that they used to kick a show off in high gear, or to jumpstart a crowd that was dragging. Janice and Sam Andrews stood next to each other and both hollered into one microphone. Janice and Sam's voice were a siren call. The audience responded, hips shimmying and long hair flailing around wildly. Those that were truly lost in the music didn't even notice the blue shirts. Cops didn't just come to a show, especially an indoor rock show, especially a show at the Matrix out on Fillmore Street. That place was crawling with counterculture revolutionaries Beatniks and hippies and burnouts and dropouts reigned supreme. The police were not welcome. The Matrix was owned and operated by musicians. Marty Ballin of Jefferson Airplane had a stake. It was small, and the ceilings were low, and there was a giant mural of the four horsemen of the apocalypse on the wall. Hunter S. Thompson skulked around the joint after consulting his briefcase of illicit substances. Like the other live music venues in San Francisco, it felt like a place where the freaks could gather with like-minded freaks and freak the fuck out. It was a refuge, a safe house, a place where they could all be free. All it took was a couple of officers in the law, starched blue shirts and thumbs resting on their basic black belts, just a little too close to their loaded standard-issue weapon to ruin the entire vibe. And the cop kept his eyes locked on Janice. He motioned to the shorter cop went over to the wall and turned on all the house lights. The oblivious dancers in the crowd paused. They knew something was up now. The cop raised his hand, flattened out like a knife in motion near his throat. And then Janice knew they were shutting them down. The sun had barely set on the summer of love when the hippie dream began to draw its final breaths. First, George Harrison sounded the alarm when he came to town. The scene was turning grass and LSD had quickly given way to heroin, meth, and barbiturates, and the scene was curdling right in front of the quiet beetle. The Diggers, that ragtag group of social street warriors so central to the San Fran ethos, hosted a parade that they called Death of Hippie. It happened on the afternoon of Big Brother's Matrix show. They carried a symbolic casket through the hate. The casket was filled with beads, incense, flowers, even long hair that some of the group had cut and donated. They ended the march at the psychedelic shop where they gave everything away for free and closed it up for good. And then the authorities started to crack down on the hate scene. The police haunted Hate Street and they put over 30 people in cuffs for truancy. Just days before Big Brother's Fateful Matrix show on October 2nd, 1967, San Francisco's finest raided the Grateful Dead's 13-room Ashbury Street pad. Inside, they found some of the band along with their business managers and some groupies. And the dead never saw it coming. They were put in cuffs and marched down the front steps like there was some prized trophy. And the police paused for good measure so that the press, who the cops had tipped off, could get some juicy photos to run with their front-page exposés. And the reason? A little grass and a big chip on the shoulder of Johnny Law. And then the cops decided to diversify their boss beyond the immediate circle of the Grateful Dead. And what about other known associates? What about Big Brother and the holding company? Big Brother's M.O. was to play as loud as they possibly could And they thrashed and pounded The twin guitars of Sam Andrew and James Gurley Twisting and nodding around the smashing rhythm San Franciscans found it invigorating, transcendent really Albert Grossman found it remedial And knew Janice could do better The sheer intensity of the sound would push Janice further She'd have to ratchet her voice up to ear-splitting levels Just to compete with the instruments And then she'd have to shred her voice raw to be heard above them It was the endearing part of their sound, but it was also unsustainable. If the police had any say, the band had already gone on too long. They were once again playing too loud. And they had their reason for walking through the doors that night. The band was already nervous at that point. Everyone was nervous. The police raid on the dead's place was all anyone was talking about. It made people paranoid frightened. If it happened to the dead, it could happen to any of them. No band was safe. Big Brother, The Airplane, Moby Great, Blue Cheer any one of them could be taken down for any reason the cops deemed fit. And the paranoia extended beyond the safety and well-being of the bands themselves. But what about the movement? The idyllic San Francisco scene? It was a vital, progressive, expressive locomotive of a thing. And if the bands were all silenced, then the thing was silenced. You could hear how nervous the band was that night by how they played. Choppy, fast, unsure. The cops could sense it too, and they were ready to feed off of it. The cop with the eagle eye was still making the gesture with his hand near his neck. The Matrix was small and closed, too tiny to risk anything stupid. Janice stopped singing. The rest of the band caught on to the situation at hand and stopped playing. The cops were on the stage now. They stunk of the authority of an agency that had arrested members of a dope smoking rock band only days earlier. And now this was a new day, a new band, and they figured they'd have a new reason. You're too goddamn loud, the cop told the band as the din of the confused crowd behind him grew. You can try to be quieter, but if you keep playing this loud, we're going to have to take you downtown for disturbing the peace. Maybe best just to quit while you're ahead and call it a night. Maybe San Francisco didn't want them anymore, didn't want any of them. They all came to San Francisco in search of a way out, in search of something new and liberating. And they didn't find it, so they made it. And now that they made it and they had it, others didn't want it there. There was a world outside of San Francisco, and they'd have to go there. Find the sympathizers, find the like-minded freaks, find liberation in different area codes and different time zones. First stop, Los Angeles, where rock music's elite would welcome them with open arms and a smile, even if they weren't wearing much more than their birthday suits. The pool of Peter Tork's home in Laurel Canyon was full of naked bodies. On the edge of the pool, flesh jiggled and jostled as partygoers made their way in and out of the water. In the pool, the water glistened in the late day sun. A guy with a thick beard and long, wet hair held a hash pipe as far above the water as he could while he held a toke deep in his lungs. He made eye contact with a naked guy nearby, and with his blazed eyes made a gesture that said, "'You want a hit, man?' Another man and a woman nestled into one of the pool's corners and sucked face. A half-empty wine jug bobbed in the water passed on a wave from person to person. Every now and then, someone would grab it and take a swig. The cap wasn't even on it anymore. It floated elsewhere on its own. The jug was definitely tainted with some rogue pool water. Hippie piss. Janice wasn't a prude, and neither were the guys in Big Brother. But this was a scene unlike any that they'd experienced in San Francisco, that was for sure high above Los Angeles in the hills and the canyons. And there were just as many clothed attendees as there were nude ones, and they were everywhere. And there was Mama Cass talking with Johnny Eccles of love, and Mickey Dolenz regaling Joni Mitchell with a story about his batshit neighbor, this guy who called himself Alice Cooper. And then there was David Crosby and Stephen Stills, who used to live at the house, so they were just always there. And they were passing this eternal joint back and forth, that motherfucker was like the number five, man. It just went on and on forever. Crosby and Stills had magical powers. That was the word going around the place. They'd touch a joint and the thing would be good for a lifetime of tokes. You think sweet Judy Blue Eyes is long? Check out this fucking marijuana cigarette, man. Crosby had the best smoke. Everybody knew that. Everybody but Roger McGuinn. McGuinn pretended that Crosby's grass was dog shit to make a point or to hold his little grudge for as long as he could. He stood inside the house, gazing out through the floor-to-ceiling window, his eyes full of anger and jealousy. What the fuck is his deal, Janice asked Cass, when the Mamas and Papas singer was finally free for a moment. McGuinn? He fired Crosby from the birds. Crosby wrote a song about a threesome, and it offended McGuinn's finer sensibilities. Then he replaced Crosby with a horse on the cover of their new album. Nobody got it. He probably should have made it a donkey, or at least a horse's ass, you know? And they were suddenly interrupted by a loud shout. A shout that was celebratory and show-stopping and attention-commanding all at once. Janice turned around and there was their host, Peter Tork, walking outside from his home. McGuinn scowled in the background. Welcome to L.A., Peter said, and he extended his arms wide for hugs. He was wearing a bathrobe, which wasn't tied shut, and not much else. If San Francisco was liberated minds and ideals, then L.A. was liberation with a budget. Janice and Big Brother were suddenly guests of this big-budget liberation. Guests because they were on their way up in the world, newly signed with the legendary Albert Grossman, and were making moves to get themselves on Columbia. And their first self-titled album, Rush released by Mainstream Records in the summer of 1967, was meant to capitalize on their growing success. Janice distanced herself from it. The band didn't sign off on it, it didn't represent their sound well, and it certainly didn't represent Janice well. Peter understood the struggle. The monkeys had just come off a tour with the Jimi Hendrix Experience, which is like a sandwich of mayonnaise and peanut butter. They had just released Headquarters, their third album, but only the first where they were writing their own songs and playing their own instruments. He got it when it came to expectations and disappointments and the sort of shit you had to outrun and live down. That was part of the reason he invited them out to his place after all. He sensed a fellow outcast, a fellow artist trying to prove herself against all odds. But before too long, whatever Tork was trying to say was drowned out by the naked woman playing the drum set inside the house. That's Renee, my girlfriend, he shouted over the noise at Janice and the boys. He looked back towards the house. Say hi, Renee. Renee raised her hand during one of her drum fills, an acknowledgement, but she really couldn't be bothered, her long black hair barely obscuring a small portion of her exposed body. If this was the big time, Janice was gonna need a moment to acclimate they all were. The big time would soon involve so many others, like the MC5 in Detroit, Leonard Cohen in New York City, Country Joe and Pigpen vying to tell Mama all about it. And in the middle of it, the band had to put together the album they would think of as their first true LP. Trouble was, it would take a miracle bigger than Albert Grossman and bigger than a Peter Tork pool party to keep Big Brother and The Holding Company in one piece. I'm Jake Brennan, This is The 27 Club. All right, this episode of The 27 Club is brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I also host. Disgraceland is available only on the free Amazon Music app. To hear tons of insane stories about your favorite musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, nirvana prince jerry lee lewis the grateful dead the rolling stones cardi b and many many more go to amazon.com disgraceland or if you have an echo device just say hey alexa play the disgraceland podcast the 27 club is hosted and co-written by me jake brennan zeth lundy is the lead writer and co-producer matt Bowden mixes the show additional music and score elements by ryan spraker and henry lunetta The 27 Club is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at DoubleElvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Our previous seasons on Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison are available for you to binge right now wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to find and follow The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you'd like to win a free 27 Club poster designed by the man himself, Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for 27 Club on Apple Podcasts or hashtag subscribe to 27 Club on social media. And we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Give that a follow. So get out there and spread the word about the 27 Club. You can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. rock a What's up for your ears?
1: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.